The Lifestylist, episode 146. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This glorious, thought-provoking episode of the Lifestylist Podcast is brought to you by ErgoDriven. These guys have changed the game for me in terms of working in the office and working in the studio. These geniuses created something called a topo mat, which is this really squishy, uneven surface pad that I stand on when I'm working at my standing desk. I don't know if you guys got the memo, but sitting is the new smoking. Well, standing for long periods of time is also the new smoking. It really sucks. The key to ergonomics is moving, and the topo mat keeps me moving because it has a fun, unpredictable, uneven surface that's also soft. So as I stand here and record this promo, literally, I'm standing on this thing, moving my ass around, like doing some Shakira hips up in this piece. No, seriously, I can't move that much when I'm on the mic, but when I'm doing other types of, because you have to stay close to it. But when I'm doing other work, this thing literally keeps me standing. So if you want to check it out, it's very affordable. All you have to do is just go over to ergodriven.com forward slash Luke, and you'll get a discount of 10% by using the code Luke. So go to ergodriven.com forward slash Luke, use the discount code Luke and save 10% off. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Spark, which is a really easy to assemble, very light and portable, yet sturdy standing desk. It's made out of a really thick cardboard and you can just move it around the office. I move it around my house to use my laptop when I'm not at my hardcore like studio desk. So again, go to ergodriven.com forward slash Luke and use the code Luke to save 10% off. Do you listen to this show and other health-related shows that give a lot of advice on superfoods and herbs and vitamins and supplements, but find yourself a bit overwhelmed? It's like just too much. You can't have 45 bottles of pills in your cabinet and figure out when to take what and what they do and all that. I know a lot of you listening are like that. So I'm happy to announce uh, one of our new show sponsors called Athletic Greens. And Athletic Greens is more than just another greens product. It's actually the most complete whole food supplement available on the market. It's got over 75 ingredients all working together to help you in 11 areas of health. It's been developed over 10 years by doctors, nutritionists, naturopaths, and one scoop of this stuff is like having 11 supplements in one. I'm not even kidding. So it's really great for the convenience factor, the energy, the lift that it gives you. It's also great for travel because it comes in these little packets if you so choose. So it is really awesome, and I'm just very happy to bring them on board, and I'd love for you to explore this and uh, see what you think. So if you go to this URL, get ready, get your pen out, get your brain out, get ready to type athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke, you will get 20 free travel packets valued at 99 bucks with your first purchase just because you listen to this show. It's pretty dope. So again, go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke to claim your special offer right now. 
What's happening, humanoids? Luke Story here, bringing you another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Today's guest is Diana Rogers, and we're talking about her upcoming film, Kale vs. Cow. She's an animal-loving farmer who's got a very strong case for the benefits of eating meat, not only for the planet, but for your health. Now, if you've been listening for a while, you know that in the past, I've had quite a few plant-based advocates on the show, like Rich Roll, Jason Robel, and most recently, the Juice Press founder, Marcus Antebi. So I wanted to give another perspective, and our guest really blew my mind with some of her understanding not only of health, but of farming and ecology. So this is a really fascinating episode, potentially a little inflammatory, of course, you know, because I like to get different opinions on the show, and she has a strong one. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing it, whether or not you're someone who chooses to consume mostly plants, animals, or even a little bit of both in my case. So before we jump into that and more details about today's episode, listen, I got to tell you about the Friday show coming up. I'm starting to do this thing where I have too many shows in, in backlog, and I can't wait to put them out because A, I'm excited about them. B, I don't want them to get too damn old and stale. You know what I'm saying? Some shows have an expiration date, like old bread. You don't want it to get moldy. I don't want this show to turn into moldy bread unless it's gluten-free. Ha ha, pating badoom. No, but seriously, this Friday's bonus show is a very special one. And I'm guessing, I haven't seen the final edit, but it could be my longest show ever. It's episode number 147, and it is the Longevity Now Conference All-Stars. Why is it called All-Stars? Because it has not one, not two, not three, but six guests in one episode. So what I do is a new format I'm trying out, and it was a lightning round format where I asked the same six guests uh, the same exact questions, or at least close to it. So we have six guests. They are Ayurveda master, Sahara Rose, who, by the way, has a full-on, full-blown solo episode coming up uh, with me soon. And then Scott Lindy from Sun Potion, Taro Isocapula from Four Sigmatic, Zen from Zen Bunny, Sabrina Riccio from the Sovereign Society podcast, on which I have been a guest, and also my buddy Aaron Alexander from the Align podcast. I've been a guest on his show. He's been a prior guest on this one here. And uh, those six folks, you guys, are going to blow your goddamn mind. Very interesting, uh, diverse group of people. So that's this Friday. It's a bonus show. If you don't want to miss that, even if you don't have time to listen to the whole goddamn 10-hour show or whatever it ends up being, make sure that you subscribe to the Lifestylist podcast so that you don't miss these episodes. If you subscribe, then it just gets downloaded to your device or to your uh, iTunes on your computer, wherever the hell they go. And that way you at least have it and you can listen to it at your leisure. couple upcoming events too. I'm doing a panel at One Taste presented by General Assembly. Strengthen your work-life balance with purpose, passion, and mindfulness. That is July 26th at 6.30 p.m. at One Taste in Venice. Then August 22nd, I'll be at Next Health in Century City giving a big biohacking deep dive. You can go to lukestory.com forward slash events to get information on any of my speaking gigs coming up. A lot of the time they're free to the audience too. So definitely would love to meet some of you in person. Okay, next, let's talk about today's show. So Diana Rogers is a real food licensed registered dietitian nutritionalist. Wow, that was a lot to spit out. She lives on a working organic farm west of Boston. She runs an active nutrition practice where she helps people recover their health through diet and lifestyle. She also hosts the wildly popular podcast, Sustainable Dish. So if you like her show today, 
I'm going to highly recommend that you listen to her show. It's very niche. It's very focused on the things we talk about, such as farming, ecology, the environment, uh, natural health, ancestral health, paleo, all this kind of stuff. And she's working on a new film project called Kale versus Cow, The Case for Better Meat. And that's basically what we talk about in this episode. So here's a bulleted breakdown for you. The top benefits of eating an ancestral slash paleo diet, the shocking difference between factory farm slaughter and sustainable farm slaughter. Really crazy stuff. You're going to trip on that. Uncovering the truth behind the term humane slaughter, the lack of humane slaughter guidelines for chickens and seafood, the fact that soil is so much more than dirt, it's alive. And we ask the question, is it possible to do plant agriculture without using animals to fertilize crops? The fact that many animals would likely become extinct if people did not eat them. Finding the truth about habit destruction growing plants versus animals. The number of creatures killed to grow an acre of kale versus one cow. What farming practices waste the most water? The insanely powerful health benefits of organ meats and how to make them taste good. The morality around the idea that humans actually become food for other animals after we die. Did growing up on cartoons make us more emotionally sensitive to eating meat? Exposing the fact that our closest relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, actually hunt and eat other animals. The health risks of eating some raw greens. The inside scoop on the tricky FDA food labeling for grass-fed, pastured, cage-free, etc. Why there has never been a single culture of vegan people in human history. The health risks involved in being vegan. How to eat seafood sustainably. Does breastfeeding your child negate their veganism? Can you be a vegan if you still feed your dog animal products? And the reason some vegans are ordered by a doctor to take supplements. So as you can see in this episode, we really cover some heavy territory. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I had a great time sitting down with Diana and getting her perspective. I love the fact that she's not only a health expert, but she is literally a farmer. So she has a very close relationship to the land and to the animals uh, on that land. So here you go with this fantastic episode with our guest, Diana Rogers. Welcome to the show, Diana Rogers. What's happening? So nice to be here. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Yeah. So to give the audience a little background on how we met, um, I ended up at a uh, Belcampo Farms meat camp and there were, I don't know how many, 15 people there or something? Yeah. Yeah. About. And I talk about Belcampo a lot on the show. So people know that that's kind of where I get a lot of my food and where I eat often. And anytime me and the, actually just last night, there was a text thread with myself and the homies. And it's like, hey, yo, who wants to eat Belcampo? I mean, it's just like every day. It's literally a half mile from here. Ah, oh, I need to check it out. Actually, I've not been to one yet. It's super close. Yeah. So... So I interviewed Anya, mm-hmm. the founder and CEO and head chef and head honcho and all that. And then they invited me to this meat camp thing. And I didn't really know what it was about, but I had a sense that it was kind of foodie centric. Yep. And I don't cook. I mean, literally, like, literally my version of cooking is heating up some bone broth. Like, woo, that's my big meal. Mm. Um, so it was interesting to experience that. And I met you and so many fantastic people there. But what was really cool about it was and really my intention of going was to find out where my food actually came from. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to you and I having a conversation. You're like, dude, I'm in this scene. I have a farm. I have a podcast about all of this. I'm going to start working on a film soon, which of course we'll talk about. So it's great to see you. And I'm really glad that I went because I had a great time. I learned a lot. I got to meet my food in person. 
and meet you. And here we are all these months later. I know. We can always say that we met at Meet Camp. Yeah. I know. My <laughs> friends were like, what is that? It sounds wrong. I'm like, no, it's really cool. It was super cool. It was neat. Well, so you know, just was... a little plug for Meet Camp, by the way. It, yeah. It's awesome. And just the accommodations alone are... It was a cool glamping situation. Yeah. I probably didn't mention it at the time because I had some sort of boundaries, but I was actually right in the middle of a breakup when I went there Aww. by myself. So that was kind of, it was like I was trying to have fun and get into it, but I think I probably appeared to be aloof or sort of a loner during that Aww. trip because I'd just be off playing guitar, like having the blues basically. <laughs> so um, it, was like, it was like a bittersweet. It was a good escape to kind of like not think about my problems for a minute. But at the same time, it was saying, it was the memories are mixed. But what was really dope about Meat Camp, uh, in addition to some of the other things, was there was a hot springs down the road. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a hot springs fanatic. Mm -hmm. So it was a cool trip. And I drove up there myself. It was fun. So um, how did you find out about Bel Campo and end up there yourself anyway? Um, I am really good friends with a woman named Michelle Tam, who has a uh, really... her. She's blowing up. It's Nom Nom Paleo. She's like... Uh, a, a paleo blogger in the Bay Area and she had gone to meet camp and she just kept on telling me how I needed to meet Anya and um, how much, you know, I reminded her of Anya and everything. And so I reached out and they invited me to come up. So it was just really great. And everything that I talk about is, you know, not only best farming practices, but also connecting people to the food they they eat and and their um, animal welfare approved. I mean, it, it's just an amazing situation. It's everything that I that I advocate for. It seems like they were doing it right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I got the sense we went to the slaughterhouse, mm -hmm. and I mean, I think we saw just about every, you know they like the glass house of the slaughterhouse. You know, they say if if slaughterhouses were glass, no one would eat mm -hmm. meat, and that was sort of part of my motivation was like looking through the glass house and seeing the whole process. And I was I was really impressed at just the the cleanliness and just the whole just it was, it was a very it's a very high end operation. Yeah, you know, the coolest thing for me about Meat Camp was tasting the salamis. Oh, dude. Yeah, those are because so good. I had never tasted them side by side before. I remember that. And oh my god, is there a huge difference? And the ones that we were ABing them with weren't like trashy salamis no. from Costco. Those were like the best ones you can get at Whole Foods or even like a nice deli. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, it's like wine tasting, but you could really like once we knew kind of what to look for in the flavors and then tasting the Belcampo salami. And since I've, I've tasted other like amazing salamis and I'm like, that's a good salami. And I actually ran into another salami maker at another meat conference. Um, for, uh, Vermont Salumi is the name of, oh. of his business. And I was telling him how I went to meat camp and, and can appreciate the different tastes. And uh, he said, you know, that's really, that's really cool because a lot of people can't I differentiate. Yeah, I would have never thought that, but it's interesting. I actually, uh, a couple nights ago, I went out to dinner with a friend of mine at a new restaurant he invited me to and it was like a, you know, a fancy Italian or French cheese bar, yeah. you know? I never really got, I don't drink wine. So I was, I never really, I'm not part of that scene at yeah. all, but we got to try all these great gourmet cheeses. And I was like, oh, damn, now I get it. They were really good. And the waiter explained where each one is from and how long it was aged and all that. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then I tasted it and I was like, oh, damn, this is a thing. This mm -hmm. is a real thing. Yeah, this, is I, not, this is not Velveeta. 
my 12 year old daughter actually like has a huge thing for cheeses and oh, like really? tastes them and, and knows, you know, she's Mom, a cheese that's, connoisseur. That's, that's only age six months, you know? Oh, really? That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's it's neat. Funny. But yeah, we did get to have that experience with the salami. And it, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned that too, because since I went there and started eating that salami, now I buy it constantly up the street at their, at the, you know, in the deli section mm-hmm. of the little burger stand they have. And it's, it's yeah, just it's, such it's a perfect times. food. And we got to make it too, which was fascinating. Yeah. And something I want to get into because I have a, a strange, not a love-hate relationship, but like a love-grossed-out relationship with the whole process of eating animals, which we'll definitely get into. Okay. Okay. So what's the deal with your farm uh, back in Massachusetts? And how did you get into all of that? I find it fascinating when a modern, sort of sophisticated, seemingly educated person adopts that lifestyle. Yeah, not um, to not to disparage farmers as being uneducated, but I've grown up in some rural areas, and they're country folk. You know, right. you don't have a country folk kind of vibe. <laughs> Thanks, I get better. <laughs> I grew- I probably just offended like four classes of people, <laughs> including you. That's kind of how I do. No, there is a perception. I keep my foot halfway in my mouth at all times during this podcast. <laughs> I know what you mean, and um, and there is this perception that that you know, and still we deal with that. Now, um, so my husband and I met in college. Actually, I was a fine arts major and he was an English major. So he didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up on a farm. We were just both kind of questioners, I guess. And we left school and moved to the West Coast and got you know, real jobs. And I was working at an ad agency, actually. And um, it was kind of fun. I enjoy like brand strategy and marketing and all that kind of stuff. I can tell because you're good at it. Uh, I was looking at your Instagram. I was like, she gets it. Uh, it's hard to market yourself though. I would much rather be someone else's <laughs> marketer than... It's- was there any point at when you became a brand that you sort of reached a threshold where you just didn't care and just unabashedly started self-promoting? No, I'm still really insecure about that. And I particularly don't enjoy like video on myself or <laughs> selfies or anything like that. Yeah. So you'll like never see my face. And in fact, um, you know, we'll talk about it later, but the pitch video that I did for the crowdfunder, I was having panic attacks the whole time. Like it, it was not, it's not easy for me. And, and I refuse to be in the film that I'm making because I yeah. actually want to watch it. <laughs> right. I was curious about that because there was, for me, when I, two years ago and decided to do this thing and become like a guy doing this thing. Mm-hmm. It was really hard for me to get over that. I felt very weird. Just like, yeah. hey, buy my thing, watch my thing, listen to my thing. Yeah. Look at my face. I'm talking to the camera. It was it was really hard. And then I think when I discovered Instagram stories, it took me a while to buy into that. Mm-hmm. But once I started doing those and just seeing how ridiculous I act and look and just sort of had a moment of self-love and, and you know, yeah. self-acceptance. And now I'm just full blown. Yeah. I, don't, I just give zero Fs, you know, but yeah. it, there was this definite turning point where I just said, you know what, this is what I do. And the people that like it, like, and the people that don't, don't, whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely don't put a lot of strategic thought into my, like when I, when I post something, it's out of pure passion. So right, I, right. I don't, um, I don't tend to have it all strategized yeah. out, but okay so back to, to back to you and your husband yeah, you, you yeah, come yeah. out to the west so, coast and you, you yeah. each get these jobs that are you know yeah. on paper successful uh-huh. and yeah and he in particular was absolutely miserable mm-hmm. um he was working for a market research company you know making a lot of money for high tech and he just was like this there's got to be something more to this 
And he was always a big environmentalist. Um, actually, when I met him, he had just gotten back from Knowles um, National Outdoor Leadership School, winter camping in the Rocky Mountains, like no tents, like it was hardcore wow. stuff. Wow. But he just didn't know what to do with that environmental passion that he had. And uh, every weekend we were living in Portland, Oregon, and every weekend we would take off and we would go visit farms. I had actually worked on vegetable farms uh, as my summer job in high school and college. And I just love being outside and being covered in dirt. And But I, I didn't know that it was going to be like my life, right? Wow. Um, and so we started visiting these farms and we learned about this thing called a CSA, which in the mid nineties, there just weren't a lot of those. So it's the subscription style farming. And it really is great because it a lot of CSAs, uh, especially on the East Coast are in communities. Uh, so it's saving land from being developed, you know, in suburbia basically, which is wow. where we are now. And so he was like, okay, the CSA thing is kind of cool and it's saving land from being developed and I could be outside and he's like an athlete and likes to be outside. And, and then he read a book called The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry, which was pivotal to I love him. the title. Show oh notes. my gosh. In the show notes, people, you'll find that. We'll and put it in there. there is an amazing documentary on him called oh, really? Look and See. And the funny thing is he's not in the documentary and it's a biography of him. Interesting. So he just didn't want to be on camera. By design, he was. Like, he doesn't yeah. own a computer. Wow. Yeah, but it's an amazing film. <laughs> I envy people like that, like renunciate type monastic people that are yeah. just like, yeah, I'm not buying into all this. Right. I think like I always think, oh, someday I'll get, I'll become enlightened enough where I'm just like, I don't need any of that. I'm going to buy an old pickup truck and move to the country. And yeah, you know, it's like. And then I just, I seem to be going deeper and deeper into it. So anyway, well, anyway so, so he reads the book. He reads this book. It's it moves him. Uh, then he starts reading some books by Joel Salatin, right. uh, Polyface Farms, um, who now Joel Salatin is a friend of mine. I oh, mean, it's awesome. really amazing. He's a cool, he's a cool dude. He's awesome. I, I met him at one conference and he was so warm and open and just yeah. like you would think he is. Yeah. I mean, know? if Joel Salatin could be my dad and maybe Wendell Berry or Alan Savory could be my grandpa. What's the I gist mean, of that book, The Unsettling of America? It's uh, The subtitle is Culture and Agriculture. And it's just about how industrial agriculture has unraveled our society, basically. Oh, wow. And the loss, you know, like the loss of the small town. I mean, industrial farming has killed America. Wow. And wow. like that whole idea that, you know, farmers are country folk kind of thing. Yeah. Like everyone used to grow food, right? right, right. Um, and still when we, we have interns on our farm now from all over the world and we get a lot of folks from uh, the Andes in Peru, there's no grocery stores. Like <laughs> right. you want to eat, you got to go get your guinea right. pig and fry it up. Like, right. like that's dinner, you know? Interesting. Um, and so... You know, really in the mid-century, once we moved to this large industrial scale agriculture, small towns just died. It, everyone left small towns to go move to the city and the economies just completely collapse. And also he gets into like values and, and all that kind of stuff too, but it's, um, it's really powerful. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I, I love looking at different cultures and societies throughout history and sort of the rise and fall of different traditions and, and yeah. all of that. Because you can kind of look back even to agriculture 
in and of itself, whenever that was 10,000 years ago mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. and everything just kind of went, you know, then developed yeah. the hierarchy, then developed governments and a military, oh, police yeah. state. Like the root of all these problems is essentially, I mean, I guess the advent of agriculture and the growth of the population at the same time have culminated, but still people are like, oh, the problem is because you're raising cows. <laughs> like, no, it's because it's deeper than that. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah. We, when we went away from the hunter gatherer model of existence, uh-huh. things went very nuts. And then, yeah, this sounds like an extension of that as it pertains to America almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, w- one of my favorite trilogies is by Daniel Quinn. Have you ever read Ishmael? No, oh but my a, gosh. a friend of mine. A friend of mine talks about it incessantly, and I just haven't I gotten like, around to it. I read that book, and I just wanted to have a megaphone. And uh, anyway, so is it, is it about that yes. transition that yeah. humankind made? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Ishmael, and then um, the story of B, and then my Ishmael. Those three together in that order are amazing. Anyhow, yeah. so back into you know how we became into farming. So yeah. so he he read these books. And a lot of uncomfortable conversations with the parental units about you know, how he's going to take his college education and now become a farmer, right? So we moved back to the East Coast and he got a job on a farm for seven bucks an hour learning how to drive tractors and all the practical stuff. He did enroll back at UMass Amherst, which is where we met, which is started as an ag school um, to get a master's in soil science. Uh, to learn like all the chemistry of soil and everything. Yeah. I want to, I'm going to, that's one of my questions we'll get to later. Yeah, That soil is fascinating. It is. It's not dirt. Yeah. Right. And then got a job offer working um, on the North shore of Massachusetts for uh, the Patton family, like General George Patton. And so we were, we were working at a, at that farm for 10 years and then moved to our current farm, which is Clark Farm outside of Boston. And it's a community farm. We're right in a suburb, half an hour outside of Boston. Uh, we do a lot of education programs there. And so this is really Andrew's gig. Right. Um, I used to be very involved at our other farm. I had a corporate job. I was working for Whole Foods actually uh, oh, in wow. marketing. Wow. And um, when we had our second child, it was just too crazy to have a corporate job and a husband that was working all the time and right. all the events and marketing. And I couldn't find enough daycare hours to possibly even justify anything. So we, I ended up uh, working at the farm and I was running the farm store and our kitchen. And we were rendering, rendering lard and selling coconut oil and all this stuff. And I kept getting more questions. What? That's the saturated fat. That's bad for you. Why are you selling that? You know, <laughs> when when would this have been? This was, uh, let's see, in the late nineties. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I remember when fat was bad for you. Okay. Right. Yeah. And those were dark times <laughs> for my physical health. <laughs> for mine too, because I was an undiagnosed celiac. Uh, found oh. out when I was twenty six. My dad has that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Early. Yeah, I was sick all growing up, all through college. I didn't find out until into my adult life. But I went from like toast for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch and pasta for dinner to gluten-free toast, gluten-free sandwich, gluten-free pasta for dinner, maybe with a gluten-free beer. Like I didn't really change my diet. I just went gluten-free, which kind of helped my stomach, but I was still on this like blood sugar roller coaster and I was a metabolic mess. Anyway, so I decided to learn more about food. I wanted to answer these questions about fat and why it's good for you. I, I had started learning a little bit about Weston A. Price, 
took me a long time before I would actually eat butter. <laughs> I had to hear it a bunch of times. I was just scared about getting fat and, and getting unhealthy. And lo and behold, it actually made me feel so much better when I started eating more fat. <laughs> when I started eating a lot of fat, this is about six years ago, I lost 15 pounds in a month without changing my physical activity one iota. Right. It's the weirdest thing. I was like, uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. I just started drinking bulletproof coffee basically. So I have like a tablespoon or two of grass-fed butter and some brain octane oil. And that was my breakfast. And then I wouldn't eat all day. I pretty much like quit sugar and carbs without even trying. I was just like, oh, I'm not hungry. Why is everyone obsessed with food? It was insane. The impact that it had on me. To not be obsessed with food is a really lovely feeling. <laughs> I know. And I was it pisses obsessed. people off though. Have you, I don't know oh, if it's really you. threatening. Yeah. Like yeah. when I, we all had, uh, I lived in a house with my girlfriend and we are, we owned a business and it was in the house and everyone would be, where's the menus? We got to order food. And it's like, I started to realize like, God, everyone is so obsessed with food and then everyone would get pissed at me because I never would sort of be on board with the project of like, we got to eat, we're dying. Everyone's blood sugar is crashing. And I'm just like, I'll have another bulletproof coffee. And I'm working 12 hour days without even blinking, you know? Yeah. But yeah. yeah it's, it's annoying when you're not so into the process of procuring and eating food. Right. Annoying to other people. Right. So I went to learn more about nutrition. I um, oh, attended... Yeah, you're a certified um, nutrition something, huh? Yeah. Well, I um, I went to NTA, which is Nutritional Therapy Association. Cool. Which is like a Weston A. Price holistic nutrition oh, um, school. Uh, and then I ended up getting my RD as well. So I'm a registered dietitian, which is the, the sort of standard American Dietetics Association credential. But that really allows me to see a broader range of people because I can take insurance, which oh, is really nice. great. So it's not just the elite people that I right. can help. I can help anyone who has insurance, basically. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I can also do medical nutrition therapy. So I can... Uh, so only RDs are legally allowed to... Like if you came to me with celiac, unless I'm an RD, I can't actually take money f from you and tell you to go gluten-free. Oh, interesting. That's medical nutrition therapy. Wow, that's interesting. God, I need to think about that with my coaching practice. <laughs> I tell people like, oh, you shouldn't eat this. You should do that all the time. Like, wow, I need a disclaimer or some sort there of... There should be, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, um, I don't do a lot of like health coaching per se, yeah. but I'm like, oh, that's... I didn't even know that's well, as a long thing. As, as long as you're advocating it without treating a specific medical condition... Uh, that would be me, yeah. So I guess I'm safe. Yeah. I've yet to have someone come and say, I have diabetes or cancer. And I'm like, oh, here's what you do, you know? Right. Yeah. I always tell it like in those cases, I'm like, I know a clinic in Mexico <laughs> they would probably <laughs> be able to sort you out, but I can't. So, uh, uh, so, that's, yeah. so that's interesting. So, so now you're... So now, so you, my you nutrition stuff Yeah, you understand really... the nutrition side and the farming side. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so now I don't really do much with the day-to-day -day farm stuff. So Andrew has his crew. Our 14-year-old son is our best tractor driver. He's into it? Totally. What if what if you like had this lifestyle and your kids were like, screw you, I like punk rock and I hate <laughs> cows. Your kids have sort of adopted all of this. And... They are... There's The coolest thing lately is they're really into that show alone. Have I you don't seen, know. So it. it's the show... It's a survivalist show. Oh, okay. And so my son like has his bug out bag oh, and dope. they've got um, Treehouse Wars happening right now. They're oh. each trying to build like their best location on the farm and you know... That's so cool. So it's a really fun life wow. for them. Good for you, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to have a kid that's a prepper someday. <laughs> my <laughs> they, son is a total they can, prepper. They could save my ass in the zombie apocalypse. But I grew up, as I, as I said, in, in rural areas and... 
I mean, I'm, you know, when I was a kid, I actually, I always wanted to move to the city and I kind of hated it. But looking back, I'm going, you know, my childhood was rough in many senses, but I did have tree houses and BB guns and went fishing and caught snakes and lizards and killed shit and wild forage blackberries and had a, you know, a really kind of cool association with the land and stuff. So that's yeah. really neat that and they have that. And that's something that Wendell Berry talks about a lot is the sense of place and this um, love of the land, like that intimate love that you have for where you grew up and, and, and knowing that pond or that meadow or that tree or whatever. Cause I'm sure you can imagine these places where you totally. grew up. Right. Yeah, yeah. And because we've lost that, that's what allows things like fracking to happen. That's what allows right. coal mining to, to destroy because nobody, nobody loves their, their place anymore. Right. Um, everyone's right. just a transplant and That's they're commuting and everything. And so he talks when about that a lot. When you were growing up, did you have uh, that sort of visceral oh relationship God. with your yeah. town? I grew up um, on Long Island uh, in a beach community oh, cool. uh, in, in the Hamptons, actually. Neat. I've never been there. You know, I, every time I go to New York... And I get all cityed out. The people that live there are like, oh, we all go upstate or we go to the Hamptons. And I'm like, what? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, I think I see a patch of it when you fly into JFK. I'm like, that must be what they're talking about somewhere down there. <laughs> There's water and big homes. It looks nice, you know, yeah. but I've never been out there. Well, as a townie, it's a very different experience. It, but, you know, so September is really the month that, you know, we, we loved it because... Everyone would leave all and the go city. back to Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. And that was before commuting was really... You know, now with the internet and everyone can can live out there, you know, so there's a lot more people out there year round that are those New Yorkers right. that, you know, but um, I grew up, you know, clamming and at the beach and just outside all the time. And I, I really, there were certain trees that I thought were magical trees. And anyway. Right. They probably were. Yeah. I met a magical tree once on the big island of Hawaii. And it was on the way to the spring that you could go swim in. And, uh, and they said, man, you, you should go hug that tree. And I'm like, all right, hippies, whatever. I don't know what kind of tree it was, banyan or some shit, big mm -hmm. ass tree. And yeah. I went and hugged that tree and it like lit me up. I'll never forget that. And I've tried to replicate it since with a number of other trees and they kind of don't have the same <laughs> mojo. As that one, I was like, God, they were actually right. Whatever that tree had going on. But <laughs> Hawaii is magical in that way. That land is, it has a certain sort of life force there. Yeah. I, I love, you know what I love is I love um, also living in Los Angeles and how at certain times in the middle of an interview like this, the gardeners come. <laughs> There's like a 15 minute window that I block out every week and don't do interviews on my calendar because I know when they come and here they are. It reminds me that I need to move into the country. <laughs> so... On the nutrition piece, and we're going to get more into this, but yeah. I've, I've sort of weaved this this conversation and I, I really want to talk about your film and just the whole premise of that. Mm -hmm. I don't take a position on like what other people should do in terms of their dietary choices. I literally don't care. Like if you want to go eat a box of rocks, good for you. Yeah. As long as you're not hurting anyone else. Um, but I do get a lot of questions on the show about, um, you know, the vegan diet, a plant-based diet versus paleo. And, and I've had... Mm -hmm. I think more so leaning toward the paleo, like ancestral food movement type people, doctors and whatnot on the show. Mm -hmm. I have had a couple of vegans. Last week I did an episode with a, a gentleman named uh, Marcus Antebi, who's the founder of a company called Juice Press in New York. And I really wanted to interview him about what it's like to run a juice company and all things juice. And then about halfway through, he went like super hardcore on the 
vegan lifestyle and yeah. was a strong proponent of that. And um, I'm sure that was useful for some of the listeners that want to learn about that or they want some support to verify the way that they're living. Mm-hmm. But I also got some feedback from a few people that were like, wow, that guy's science was totally wrong and everything he said was not based on actual facts. It's very outdated. Not a few, but a couple people sent me emails or messages about that. Uh, where I didn't get any support from like a vegan listener that's like, oh, hey, right on. Thank you for giving that person, mm. you know, our movement a voice or well, whatever. We'll, 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 we'll turn the tables on that, I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, that's one of the reasons I was excited about having you on because there, there are health implications of, you know, what route you take. And mm-hmm. there's also environmental and to some degree cultural implications yeah. I and mean, even economic implications down the road as this goes on. Um, but just for anyone that doesn't kind of understand the framework from the nutritional perspective, mm-hmm. you know, what is ancestral health and paleo? Because I think a lot of people, I'm kind of into it. So I sort of get like, oh yeah, it's what, you know, people ate back in the day and that's how we got here and that's how we survived. What's your take on eating like ancient people's ate? Well, I think that there's a lot of different foods that humans have thrived on. And we see, you know, everything from an almost all meat diet and the Inuit in the Maasai to a very high carbohydrate diet in the Katavan. So they were like 70% roots. So I think that humans can thrive on a lot of different traditional foods, you know, plant foods or animal foods. But it's once we introduced processed foods to these cultures and, and to our own bodies, I mean, the grocery stores, I mean, none of that stuff is natural foods. Like I just got back from Expo right. West. Come on. <laughs> yeah. It was disgusting. That's like, funny. Like For, the, tell people what Expo West is. Uh, just... So I, it was madness, but it, it, it's the natural products. It's the largest natural products show where all the grocery buyers and go and learn, you know, about all the different natural packaged processed foods basically that are out there. And some of them can be helpful to people, you know, like I, I, I don't, I'm not a purist. And, you know, if you need a, a bar here and there or, you know, as an emergency protein snack, or I think jerky can be really great, you know, but most of the stuff I saw was either really high in, in, in sugar or, or processed carbohydrates um, or, you know, sugar alcohols, which that's really disappointing to me because there's a lot of like keto and paleo foods that have like lots of sugar alcohols in would, them. Would that be like xylitol mm-hmm. and the like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I highly recommend to people that come to me. Um, I mostly work with people with um, like IBS type stuff, celiac, Crohn's, that type of thing, gut, gut problems or with metabolic stuff uh, going on, weight loss, blood sugar problems. So those are like the two main populations that I help. And it's really, you know, let's get back to what is the most biologically appropriate diet for humans. And once we see, especially the metabolic damage from a high, high intake of processed carbohydrates, lowering the carbohydrates tends to be the the most beneficial intervention for that. So my husband can eat a lot more carbs than me. He's he's a rock. Um I, I tend to be more low carb, but I think focusing on, you know, real food sources and go, getting away from sugar and processed foods is really the best way to go and including animal products in right. your diet. Uh I know a lot of people have issues with that, but 
to me, it is humans are omnivores. Meat, especially red meat, which has been the most vilified, is one of the most nutrient dense foods there are. So, okay, yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's a good. That's a good intro to that. And I think I'm going to circle back around to some of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to touch on some of the farming practices, uh, some of the ethics involved, and then hopefully we'll have time to circle back into a little more of the nuanced information about the health implications. Because that's meaningful to me personally, because I was a vegetarian for ten years. Mm-hmm. Because as I oh as I told you I said when I was going to talk about it in the episode yeah I saw this documentary film called Earthlings uh-huh. uh huh narrated by Joaquin Phoenix yeah and it was all this like a hidden camera and like a secret footage of slaughterhouses and I mean it was just horrific the way that the animals were treated and abused and I mean just unnecessarily tortured I mean just horrible but the interesting thing about the film is it sort of it's been a long time since I saw it but the theory of the film was there's not only by eating animals, but it explored a number of different ways in which humans exploit animals in cruel and unethical ways. And the impact of that film was huge. And so I became a vegetarian for 10 years. And, um, and I always say, like, I, was, I became a vegetarian to be healthy and it almost killed me. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, did not, it did not work for me. And eventually I found a solution and I got my way out of it. So I, I think that you know, there's some relevance there that we can cover. But in terms of just, I think the issue that uh, why... At that time, and this is going back like early 2000s or something, to me, I didn't know that there was an alternative way to include animal products in a healthy and ethical way into your diet. It was like, it was factory farms or else you were a vegan or a vegetarian. And so, I mean, I remember back in the early 90s, I used to play in a band and we rehearsed in this place called Vernon and the Farmer John's factory was there. And as soon as you'd go off the free with the 10 freeway and dip into Vernon, it smells like just rotting corpses are just horrendous. Right. And then one time we went to do a photo shoot there because they had this mural that was like a farm on the on this big wall and it was like a cool backdrop. Yeah. And the security came and kicked us out. No cameras. It was all secretive and weird. Uh-huh. And secret service dudes, you know, and like kicking us. You know, it was very sketchy. I was like, why are you guys hiding this? So there, I had a lot of things that indicated to me that that wasn't the right choice. But you know, all these years later now, I mean, I go to Bel Campo, I meet the the farmers at Farmer's Market, I grill them about, you know, what water the animals are drinking, how are they slaughtered? I mean, it, I didn't know that you could have a more intimate relationship with the producers of your food and that there was some accountability and traceability there. So what's the main difference between someone like you or a Polyface Farms or a Bel Campo and the current state of affairs that like a true factory farm? Right. I mean... I think a lot of us in the real food movement are unfortunately wasting a lot of time um, in fighting because we all should be on the side of better meat, you know, whether whether people choose to eat meat or not, because we need to take responsibility for the deaths of these animals and how they're being slaughtered. Um, I happen to be on the board of Animal Welfare Approved. I'm I'm really, I've I've been to many slaughterhouses. I've I've witnessed. You know, it happened many times and there are much better ways than than how it's portrayed in a lot of these films. And and a lot of the films, uh, you know, they're they're cherry picking some really horrific scenes that are uh, gut wrenching and it shouldn't happen, but don't happen that often. And there are some really great alternatives to to all that. So, so what is, you know, like when I drive up the five freeway to go to the Bay Area from LA, you know, as you, you go over this uh, certain mountain range, like past 
Valencia Magic Mountain. It's a half an hour over this hill and you get down over the hill, you drive for a little bit out in the flatlands. You're now in central California, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a whole other dust bowl conversation that we'll we'll probably get into. But there's a certain point at which, I mean, you have your windows rolled up, no AC on, and the car just starts reeking like you have a cow pie literally taped to your face. (sighs) And then you drive by these poor cattle, man, out in this dry, arid land, and it just stinks. Like no food should be grown there. Yeah, we, like I mean, almonds or cattle. So what, it is. It is not a hospitable food growing place. So and what, in, what's in, what's a cow's life look like in what do you call it? A CAFO? Is that what it's called? Uh, you can call it a CAFO or feedlot. A feed. Okay. What's a feedlot animal's life look like from birth? To the moment of slaughter, if you could, if you could summarize that yeah. in that model, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people think is the only, like I used to think, that's the only way animals are raised. Right. There's a lot of that in Colorado too. There's a lot mm-hmm. of land where you drive around and just see these huge, gross farms like that. Yep. What's that versus someone that's doing more of the sustainable, you know, nature-based approach to raising animals? Well, interestingly, all cattle start out as grass-fed. So cows, even feedlot cows or CAFO cows, I guess you would say feedlot cows, but they don't. They're not like born on a feedlot and live their whole lives on a feedlot. So a lot of people don't know that. And so, and 85% of the cattle in America are are grazing on grass that can't be cropped. Um, So even if they end up at a feedlot, they're still, most of their life is actually on grass outdoors. And for those reasons, um, and, and even when they get to a feedlot, and I'm not endorsing feedlot beef, I think that grass fed, well managed beef is the gold standard, of course. But um, if you compare that, you know, a lot of people will give up red meat because of ethic and health reasons, but, and then eat chicken or fish, right? But chicken is 100% grain fed, 100% indoors in the worst conditions. Um, I mean, at least cows are outside and they can move around and they're not in cages. You know, I I mean, there's a, there's a huge difference in just the humane treatment and also the slaughter. So um, there's no humane slaughter rules for uh, poultry. Right. And so... Isn't uh, that funny? And also I've heard with seafood as well, you can just do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. You could just, yeah. They just haul them onto the boat and let them suffocate. What's strange is I think a lot of people that are more leaning toward a vegetarian or plant-based diet think they can kind of quote unquote get away with eating some seafood or some chicken because it seems to be less mean than killing a larger animal. I know. Like a cow or, you know, a sheep or something like that. Right. And so... I think a lot about least harm and and I think it's very noble for people to want to cause the least amount of harm through their diet. Certainly I I try to do that. But I actually when you think about, you know, all right, chicken versus beef, how many lives of chickens, you know, one steer can produce about almost 500 pounds of edible meat. Wow. Right? That's insane. How many chickens do you need to kill for 500 pounds? Right. So if you're right? counting like End of heartbeat per end of heartbeat. Yeah. Right. Well, this is okay. I was like, these conversations make my head explode because I'm just, I love the way things work. You know, it's like, I'm not political about it. It's just fascinating to me because I've also pondered when it comes to, you know, as I said, because I just morally and spiritually, I've had to really grapple with the idea of whether or not to eat animals and Mm -hmm. all of that. I mean, I was a kid, my dad would take me fishing. I hated, I like catching the fish, but I hated killing the fish. It just, I like would cry. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm soft, <laughs> you know, um, but some fish is delicious. So I got, you know, my body likes it. But what trips me out sometimes is with two things that I, I've, a lot of things I pondered and we're going to touch on them. One is like, when you think about 
mankind's relationship with the land and with animals and say I'm an ardent vegan or plant-based person mm-hmm. and I'm also for supporting indigenous people. And right. I, I think that the way the, the Native Americans, for example, have been treated and that genocide that took place here yeah. is so wrong. But I never really hear anyone bitching about how the Indians are such savages and such assholes because they ate animals. Yeah. Know? And then the other thing is, is like if you want to talk about the loss of life per organism, how many organisms have to die to take a piece of, you know, forest land or, you know, a piece of land, land. grassland and turn it into a kale pasture or something. I mean, I think like how many rats, rodents, moles, snakes, lizards, grasshoppers, worms, fungi, bacteria, birds. But also the runoff from the pesticides, the water that was diverted from the river to for irrigation and the, the salmon that now don't have a habitat, the bears that depend on the salmon. I mean, it is, you know... So again, not right or wrong, good, bad. I don't like to get into the isms of things right. and the duality, but I like to zoom out and just look at the strange behavior of us humans and, mm-hmm. and looking at something like, wow, how many animals have to die if I want to grow some radishes or whatever versus one cow? So I... I I wonder, like if you take one cow that can produce 500 pounds worth of viable calorie dense, nutritionally dense meat, Mm -hmm. and you throw that cow on a one acre pasture versus like how many animals need to die for you to clear that land and turn it into a monocrop of kale or corn or soy or whatever, like the loss of life. Maybe that cow's smashing some bugs as it walks around, but you don't really have to like kill the land to raise a cow, but you have to right. kill the land and re and artificially make it fertile to grow vegetables. Am I on point? Totally. Here at all? And so if you're not using animal manure to so plants suck nutrients out and you have to replenish that soil bank, you gotta make more deposits in order to have more crops the next year. Right. So you can either do that with chemical ag or you can do that with animal. There, you know, there are some veganic solutions. I've heard about these algae you know, options. But, you know, I think that the solution needs to be more of a closed loop situation and it needs to be more regional based. So, I mean, trucking in algae from I don't know where to every farm in California and Texas, I, I, I don't see that as a really regenerative solution. And so, um, you know, we can raise cattle in a way that actually increases biodiversity increases the number of pollinators. In fact, there's um, an expert that I that I know very well that I'm working with that um, works with the Audubon Society on using grazing animals to increase bird populations. So wow. that's not what happens in a soy right. uh, field, you know, and that's not what happens when we make lab meat. So is that is that I'm picture I'm trying to picture the cycle of of farm life here because in in someone like you that farms like you do or Bel Campo or mm-hmm. Joel Salatin, from what I understand and just from some of the the footage that I've seen of that process, it's like you're mimicking how things work in nature and the cycle of life. So why would that the bird population would then be increased because the animals are defecating into the grass, bugs come to eat the crap or whatever, and then birds come to get the bugs and then. I mean, it's like yeah. everything is eating each other all the time. Is I guess I what mean, I'm yeah. At, right? So that's I mean, that's one of the things that I talk about is everything eats and is eaten, and everything is a cycle. And every 
I mean, we get eaten at the end of the day. You know, people just don't like to think about that, but we have to think about that. Oh, go <laughs> no, ahead. no, it's good. I just get this stuff is so fascinating to me because I often ponder my own death. I think it's just healthy to face death. And yeah. oftentimes I look in the mirror, not in a morbid way, not in a fearful way, but I just look at my in my eyes and I go, Luke, you're going to die in a few years. So there's that. Just to say, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Just as an acknowledgement that to not get too attached to my corporal form and to my apartment and my car, and my career and the people that I love. Yeah. And I also think about the fact that if, unless I choose to be cremated or, or I, you know, drown at sea and I end up being eaten by sharks or something, then bacteria, fungi, whatever in the soil is going to eat me. And then that's going to become grass that some animals are going to eat and birds are going to eat, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's kind of the natural order of things. Yeah, I mean, we're all just molecules being recycled into other molecules. So, and so, so are are those microorganisms that are going to devour my corpse at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Burbank? Are they assholes and mean or evil people because they want to eat my body? <laughs> or is that just, yeah, I know, mean, is so that just the way it goes? Yeah, there was an interesting thing that happened at our farm where my daughter was. She was having a play date. And so she and her friend were walking down by, we have this magical little pond on our farm. And there was, they came upon this sort of massacre. And there was like wool everywhere. They came back. They're like, oh my God, you have to see this. And it was, you know, they're describing the guts everywhere and all this stuff. And I guess a coyote had gotten one of our sheep and the crew, the farm crew didn't didn't see it because it was kind of down by the pond and and they just didn't catch it that morning when they were doing their rounds. And we had to have a long conversation. And so she was 10 at the time about, you know, was that coyote bad? Because the coyote has to eat too, right? And we do our best to protect the sheep from the coyotes, but there are coyotes. And, you know, it, it wasn't the coyote being cruel. The coyote needs to eat. And with the rest of the body of that sheep, we put it in our compost and that's going to go get, you know, broken down and then put on the fields and that's going to grow your kale. And she was like, what? You mean I'm eating animals? You mean, can you taste it? And we were like, no, 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 you can't taste it. But like your kale is taking up all the nutrients from the soil and that's blood and bones and, and all kinds of decomposing everything, Right. And she's like, you mean it's impossible to be vegan? And we were like, yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, it, you know, so people can avoid the death on their plate, but they can't avoid the fact that there were deaths that happened for their food to be there. And so, again, it's just about sort of realizing food production, really understanding how nature works and how healthy ecosystems all have plants and animals and the the smartest way is to work with nature and try to use biomimicry. Yeah, explain, explain that process of biomimicry. R- run me through sort of the cycle of, of life from soil and the fact that the soil is in fact alive, otherwise it would be dead dirt, right? Like, right. Run me through the whole cycle from beginning to end, how what eats what along the way if you can. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, it can be a broad version of that. You, yeah. know, you don't have to get deeply uh, biological about it, but just yeah. the, the general scope, I think, would be interesting for people to understand. Because most of us, we go to Whole Foods and we're just like, oh, yeah, I'm getting some carrots and some fish. And, you know, like we don't think about how that actually goes down before human intervention and agriculture that we forced upon the land and essentially like really raped 
the land in order to grow our own food. Right. So if your approach is getting back to that natural cycle, what does that natural cycle look in a broad sense? So when we talk about, well, we can talk about grazing animals and yeah. and and how it does mimic nature. So if you were to picture a savanna in Africa and you've got these large herds of animals, grazing animals as a wildebeest, um, they're constantly moving because uh, they're 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 worried about getting attacked by hyenas or or lions or whatever, right? And so they're they're constantly moving across the plains and they're eating whatever they can as they as they you know quickly can get a bite and then they're mo- and then they're moving on and they're being moved by the predators and basically they're grazing on the on the grass when they're there is uh, actually stimulates new grass growth. So grass has to be broken down biologically. It can't just, you, you can't just have an empty meadow with nothing eating it. The grass will just lay down and die. It's taking oh, more nutrients out of the soil every time it grows. And so eventually, if you're not fertilizing it, so if you it's ca- going to die. So if you care about the energy of plants and like the life, you know, like if you care about plants, <laughs> if you care about grass... Cows are good for it, basically. Exactly. And so, so I mean, you can use miracle Grow or whatever, right. you know, like you can use fossil fuels and chemicals. Right. Or you can use animal impact. And so we need the cows or, or other ruminants, bison, goats, and sheep to right. be grazing on the land. We need um, them pooping on the land because that actually inoculates the soil with healthy bacteria for more of a, a healthy biome uh, for the soil. And then we need that land to rest. Um, and as the land is resting, that's when all the carbon sequestration can happen on the land. And uh, so that's the difference between just like a cow continuously grazing on a one acre patch versus this idea of moving it. And so we don't need to have lions and hyenas to move the cattle. We can actually just use electric fences and move them. And in the process, again, of allowing it to rest, it will um, hold rain better. It, uh, again, sequesters carbon. And um, there's so much life and bacteria in the soil that the grass is actually dripping down little bits through photosynthesis, dripping down little bits of carbon to feed the bacteria. And the bacteria are giving the plant the nutrients it needs. And oh, then there's so cool. fungal networks underneath that are mining minerals um, that wow. are feeding the plant minerals. So oh, it's a really magical system that's so, happening. See, I always trip on uh, how plants can take inorganic mineral matter, basically the rock, mm-hmm, right, that's mm-hmm, in the soil. Mm-hmm. And then plants turn that into something that we can eat or that animals can eat and then we can eat the animals and actually derive the nutrition from. But I didn't know about that part. Yeah. That the fungi is like, hey, cool, we'll help break this down, mm-hmm. put it up through the root system of the plant. And give it to the cow. And then That's and then so cool. the cow can take grass that we can't eat and convert it into nutrient-dense protein that we can eat on land that we... So there's different types of land. And I think that people don't get this part either. And it's really critical. But there's croppable land. And then there's land that we should not be cropping. And so... Like Central California. <laughs> well, yeah. is like artificially manufactured it, farmland. It's not fertile land. Right. And it probably never was. I mean, it's very arid. It's almost desert. Right. Or do you think we turned it that way through ruining it from over farming it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know what the native like what what the land looked like yeah. in central california you know way it's way freaking, back it's a freaking disaster now though but <laughs> yeah, i mean the whole the whole middle of the country 
is fertile because of bison. Right. It's not fertile because of cropping. Right. And when you fly over the country and you see those large squares, that is not okay. That's not natural. What would be natural is herds of bison pooping on the land, eating the grass, and then moving on. And and do not uh, the birds then and the, so say in the in the sake of a farm, mm-hmm. do not the birds like chickens or turkeys, right? Then they f- you, can, you can rotate them to follow yep. the cows exactly, and they're eating all the bugs that are so hanging they, out to eat all the poop. They scratch through the manure. They eat any parasites that might be in there, and so it's actually a lot healthier for the cattle to be moving as well because they're getting fresh grass, and they're also if one of them has a parasite load. They're not all eating right after that guy and catching parasites. And so for us, uh, for our farm where we have sheep, the healthiest way to maintain a healthy gut system for our sheep is moving them. It's not antifungals and antiparasites. It's just keeping them moving constantly. And then we follow with the chickens. And so the chickens, you know, break it all. They scratch the ground. They're aerating it. They're allowing the the rain to come in and and penetrate the soil better. They're, um, you know, adding their own manure to the soil. So we have incredibly healthy soil that we would not be able to have if we didn't have the animals. And so... That's really cool. I mean, I think the goal should be as closed loop as you can. Right. And you cannot do that without animal inputs. Right. We'll be right back after this important announcement. Hey guys, I'm super pumped to share our new sponsor, BioStrap, with you. This is a wearable tech that very accurately measures your biometrics while you're doing things like sleeping, working out, and even meditating. I've been geeking out on this device for the past week or so. I'll do things like set up all my biohacking stuff and do a meditation session or breath work or whatever and test my biomarkers. So I'll look at my heart rate, my heart rate variability, all these types of things and track it and see what works and what doesn't. It's very accurate and gives you a lot of insight as to what's going on with your biology as you do different things. Now I talk a lot about quality sleep on this show and I find the sleep data on this to be really thorough and very accurate. So I wear this wristband while I sleep And I'm kind of in a competition with myself to see how much quality sleep I can get. So it's really fun to wake up in the morning and kind of check and see, ah, I went to bed a little late. Oh, I only had this much deep sleep. I had this much REM sleep. This was my resting heart rate, all of this stuff. So it's very cool. I'm using it for a multitude of different things. One thing that I haven't even really gotten into at this point, but will very soon, is actually programming different workout routines into it and seeing what's going on with my biomarkers while I'm doing different workouts and ice baths and all kinds of crazy stuff. So this uh, really gives you some superpowers in terms of getting insight into what's going on with your body during different habits and behaviors. So I'm really excited to introduce BioStrap to you guys. If you want to check it out, which I highly recommend that you do, you can go to biostrap.com forward slash Luke and use the promo code STORY to save 25% off of your order, and you'll also get free worldwide shipping. So go to biostrap.com forward slash Luke and use the code LUKESTORY. This is an awesome piece of technology, and I think it's going to really benefit your life and your health. And now, back to the interview. 
I'm, I'm picturing the example you gave of Africa and I can see, you know, crows coming in and kind of following the herds of gazelle or whatever, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And how, and, and you can, I always think of those, uh, when I was a kid, they were called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom yeah. and there were these, you I know, love those. shows. Yeah. I, I used to love those. And, you, and then you'd see how the packs of lions would stalk the, you know, the gazelle and the hyenas would come after them and they'd, they would be moved around. And now that yeah. I think about it, they were actually, it was like a forced migration. Yeah from spot to spot to evade predation. Yeah. And then that would then bring that that piece of land to life. And then mm-hmm. eventually another herd of those animals would come around or they come back through next year or whatever. Yeah. And so there's... Um, so in continuous grazing where you would have maybe, you know, one or two cows on one acre, what ends up happening is the cows just, you know, it's like a salad bar and they're just picking their favorite types of grass. They eat it down so deep that they actually end up killing it. And then the the bad grasses and weeds, you know, take get hold and can take over the pasture. It ends up with a much more unhealthy system than if right. and and actually the the carbon that you can sequester in the movement of them is um you know there's a just a study that came out last week you know over uh, three tons per hectare um, of carbon sequestration and that's just uh, in in this model that I'm talking about where you're moving them right um, we can't do that with plants. Interesting. Yeah, I think I remember Anya mentioning uh, up at Belcampo when I was just asking her about the property and stuff. Uh, I think she had said she had 22,000 acres or something and you know, there's just these lush green fields over much of that property. Mm-hmm. And she said that when they bought the property that it was basically just all dead. It was just arid, toasted from bad agriculture and that they had actually brought it back to life from the the closed loop system that you're describing. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, you should have seen it when we bought it. It would just look like a desert. Yeah. And now it's like this lush field yeah. of green grass. Right. So from using animals as sort of nature or creation and, you know, intended them to be used. Right. So what would happen then? Uh, like, let's just say right now, if every human being on earth was like, cool, this vegan thing, I'm down. We're going to stop eating animals right now and just grow plants to eat. What would happen to all the existing animals? <laughs> I mean, I'm just totally hypothetical, weird question, but like, yeah. where would all the, like, if we just turned them all loose in the wild, what would happen? I have always got the sense that cows specifically would eventually become extinct if we didn't eat them because they're not good at evading predation. Yeah. I mean, they, they've lost a lot of their, I mean, that, yes. Because they've been domesticated <laughs> and hybridized from the orac, right? Which is pretty fierce beast. Like mm-hmm. bison are really hardcore. I mean, they're still the real animal, but yeah. cows are kind of, They've been bred to be docile and wimpy and easy, easy to manage. Yeah, and so sheep are, are sheep are an invention. They're not. They are as well. Yeah, I mean the the domestic sheep and 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 all that. Um, I think that you know, I mean, I haven't really thought about it a lot because it's so absurd. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's that's my job as the host of the Lifestyles <laughs> Podcast. This is the kind of shit though. When I like meditate or go into a float tank or something, I think about, yeah, should I be eating meat? And I think, well, what if I stopped? Well, what if everyone stopped? You know, and it's like. Oh, and then you kind of hit this wall. Oh, yeah, that doesn't really... The, the mass doesn't really add up at the end of the day. It's kind of like, oh, that's nice in a sort of fairy tale. But in reality, it's sort of just like... It's how evolution has arrived at this place, is it not? Yeah. Okay, so what about the claims of widespread destruction of, of habitat? Um, it, specifically, because you hear this in some of the, the plant-based uh, documentaries and whatnot that we're destroying all of this natural habitat to grow corn and soy and mm-hmm. all of these 
all this livestock feed essentially. And so the idea there is that if we, well, if everyone just stopped eating all meat, then we wouldn't have to grow all this food for those animals. I'm not a big fan of feeding grains to animals that eat grass. Because they're not, they're not designed <laughs> to eat that. Um, and, and, um, and I do think that we need to be eating less animals that eat grain. First of all, I mean, just health-wise, animals that eat grain tend to have a lot of omega-6 fatty acids in them, like chicken and turkey, a lot of omega-6. Cows on grass, a much, much nicer ratio. So we can actually use cows to improve land, to improve the water holding capacity, to build soil health. And um, they actually can provide us with really great nutrition at the same time. And what about the argument that we're wasting all of the world's water mm-hmm. because, you know, to raise a cow to that 500 pounds of mm-hmm. great meat that it takes X amount of gallons of water and we're going to just run out of water. We're wasting it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, why, again, you know, my ref, point of reference is always Central California because this is where I'm from. Yeah. Uh, is like when you go by and watch the almond plantations, there's a lot of goddamn water being used to make a little almond, you know? Yeah. So what, what about the water piece in, in the whole system? Yeah. I mean, Water and Power, a California heist was a really great documentary all about exactly that. So, um, I mean, there's whole towns that don't have drinking water, but yet they're sucking up the from the aquifer and flood irrigating the almonds. Right. Okay. Oh, the wonderful company and all that yes. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the numbers where they're saying that, you know, cattle take up a million gallons of of water. Um, There was a study out of UC Davis that looked at just what the cows are actually drinking and what's used to actually produce even typical beef. So there's different ways of calculating water. There's different methodologies. There's green water and blue water. So green water would look at all the rainfall on all the land that the cow was on. And again, Cows are on, most cows are on land that we can't farm. So this is like looking at all the hills and you know what I mean? Like all the land that that can't be cropped anyway, the cows are on it. They're actually improving the water holding capacity. So, you know, so that when it rains, it doesn't just run off. It actually is a sponge and sucks in. So you can, you need cattle or other ruminants in order to make the soil able to absorb it so it doesn't form this hard crust and just run off. That makes sense. Yeah. Because if it just runs off, there's no aquifers being fed or created Mm -hmm. underneath the ground. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Um, And so this study out of UC Davis calculated if you're just looking at blue water, so like what is actually used for the cows. So don't don't count the rain and and all that. Um, It was about 410 gallons per pound of beef, which is the same as a lot of other foods that I don't hear people vilifying. So I think it was um, walnuts, uh, rice, sugar. There was there was a lot of other foods that are plant based and okay. You know, so so I think you know we need to look at how people are measuring things and and if there's any bias in those in the methodology. It seems like there might be. I mean, that's why I was so interested in getting your side of the story and and your you know film and all that because. There's so much like information coming with the the counterpart, and there's not there's not really like a voice for this. It's sort of like in almost, and you'll I guess look forward to this because of the ethical and moral and just the emotionality uh, attached to a lot of people's diets. Um, there's not a lot of voices that are proponents of eating meat as health, eating 
eating and raising different kinds of meat and animal products for sustainability, all this kind of stuff. To me, like I just look at, I don't really understand the complexity of, of it all, but I know that when I was a vegetarian, I was very unhealthy. When I started integrating some good animal products, I became very robust. And here I am, 47, kicking ass, feel very good about my, my eating uh, habits. But what do you think it is you know, emotionally that makes people so um, like egoically attached to their diet? You know, do you ever think mm-hmm. about that? Oh, it's a like, lot. I don't meet someone, for example, and you know, they're like, oh, Luke, what are you doing? I don't go, oh, I'm Luke, I'm a meter. Right. I mean, I just like, I don't even think about what I eat. It's just like, it's just fuel. I just, I need to be healthy and feel good. And then I'm not, you know, like my personality is not identified by my food choices. That's why it's been hard uh, for me to raise money for my project because really? people who eat meat uh, are generally pretty cool with it, right? And they're not on this crusade to make everyone eat meat. And so they're, you know, we don't have a Leonardo DiCaprio or a Joaquin Phoenix that's right. like, meat, you know? Right. And so, you know, it's like trying to squeeze, you know, religious funds out of an atheist. It's like... That's interesting. Yeah. I guess yeah. because, wow, that's... So I think about this from a personal point of view. As I said, when I was a kid, I didn't like killing the mm-hmm. the fish. My dad would take me bear hunting and I would feel really bad for the bears when right. they fell out of the tree, you know, and right. after being shot. Uh, it yeah. just... I, and I even now, I mean, if you were like, Luke, if you're hungry, you need to go out in a field and slice the throat of that cow and carve it apart. I mean, the blood, the guts, I think I have a hard time with it. And mm-hmm. my view of it, and that's one of the reasons, as I said, I went to Belcampo, I think it's partly because of two different things. Okay. One is growing up with cartoons where animals were made into friendly little cute people. Yeah. And so I think of a cow as like my friend and that mm-hmm. I'm killing another person or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is 150 years ago, I probably would have been being breastfed at six months old and there would have been chickens being chopped apart across you know the yard or you yeah. know what I mean? Like just the whole element of slaughter and, and the fact that there can be, you know, like that Native American respect for the mm-hmm. life that you're taking and yeah. that that life needs life in order to be sustained. I think, I feel like I miss that. And so I'm disconnected from part of my humanity. Totally. Thus me becoming a vegetarian because I'm like, God, I don't want to hurt animals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. there's so many things that you said there that we could talk about all night. So give me your take. Like why why do we so emotionally fucked up about like the fact that we kind of need animal foods to be healthy and... Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a couple things. I think we're disconnected from how food is produced because nobody lives on a farm anymore and everyone lives in a city. I think that um, we have uh, never been in a time in human existence where we've actually had so much food that we've had the luxury of pushing it away. So I think that people who are making dietary choices based on morals are not always realizing that they're in a position of privilege to be able to push away something that, you know, I mean, you would never... If you think of the Sioux Indians with the bison, there there was no one having an existential crisis about killing bison in the 1200s when, when they were living off bison, right? And so I think that people are really afraid of death. And I mean, I saw this when I was working in hospitals and, you know, people were you know, not having death plans. Their family had to make decisions for them. Nobody ever wants to just kind of have a plan and say, okay, this is going to happen to me eventually, like you were saying. Here's what I, here's how I'd like it to go, right? If you have a really old pet, 
do you let it suffer and live out its days and die naturally or do you have it put down out of being trying to be humane, right? Our only relationship right now though is to our pets, which humans have made. You know, they're that's not, you know, humans have have made cats and dogs. Right. Meaning you can't just go out and be like, hey, tiger, come here, come inside and like sit in my lap and watch TV with me. Right. So over the course of thousands and thousands of years, those two animals in particular have become domesticated, Mm -hmm. meaning we bring them inside and they live with us. Yeah. We have the luxury of stopping and thinking about a lot of stuff, but we're also not making those connections to what is the most sustainable way to grow food? Is it soy patties that are factory farmed with fossil fuels and tractors and pesticides and killing all of nature and annihilating all of nature so that we can have soy patties for dinner? Or is it maybe, you know, something that looks a lot more like a grass-fed beef and a nice salad for dinner? So... Right. What are some of the... You know, as and I love that you have the farming perspective, and you're very much into the saving the environment and the sustainability. I mean, you're living your, your message. It's not like you're, you know, a professor that's writing books about it, talking shit. You actually live this. But mm-hmm. from the your health expertise, what are what's your perspective on the health risks involved in eating a vegan, a strictly vegan diet? Uh, because I, I, don't, I never really know who to believe. You know, as I said, I interviewed someone who's an ardent vegan recently on the recent show. And, uh, you know, he said that you don't need any of the nutrients that come from animal products. You don't need, you barely need any protein. You can get all your B vitamins from plants. We didn't really mention the essential fatty acids and things like that. But his argument was... I wish you did. His argument, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I, he was a New Yorker, man. I wasn't yeah, about yeah, to, you know, <laughs> ar- he was, it was not a two-way conversation, yeah. you know. Um, but, he, but he was very, you know, he's, I, he looks healthy. Yeah. Well, I've asked some, you know, I have a couple plant-based friends and I said, do you ever get your labs done? Like, what is, what do your essential fatty acids look like? Your uh, vitamin D, yeah. um, you know, vitamin A, there's just fat-soluble nutrients that it doesn't seem like they're abundant enough in, in plants. And they're like, oh, I get my labs. I'm totally healthy. I'm cool. Yeah. I'm like, really? That's Is there some kind of alchemy going on well, there energetically? Well, there are some people genetically who might do better, a, a little bit better than others okay. for a period of time on uh, avoiding meat. So uh, about half the population can't effectively convert beta carotene um, to vitamin A. So there you've got half the population right there can't would right. would, would not thrive on and it. And what's vitamin A useful for? So you need it for good eyesight. It's a fatty fat soluble vitamin that um really good for skin. Those little bumps you get on the or some people get on the back of their arms, that's a vitamin A deficiency. Oh weird, I've had that. Ah. I don't I used to have those and I don't have them anymore. Maybe that was a holdover of the vegetarian years. Probably. That's totally weird. I used to see I used to feel those and be like, are those zits? They're not zits. They're sort of like little weird calcium deposits or something funky it's like that. It's a vitamin A deficiency sign. Wow, cool. Yeah. I think that it's possible to be healthy if you're vegetarian and getting enough eggs and and cheese. Although I think for a lot of people, the protein is, I mean, it's so many more calories in beans and rice versus you can get 30 grams of protein from about 130 calories worth of cod, right? So so it's like, is the goal to... Not, you know, if we're trying to reduce our caloric, overall caloric intake and maximize our nutrition and get the most nutrient density possible is meat. Like that's just like, that's just plain science. 
you know, red meat in particular has B12 and iron, which are really hard to find in other foods and in a bioavailable form. Um, and chicken doesn't really have any of that. And um, according to the CDC, B12 and iron are the most common nutrient deficiencies worldwide, especially in women and children. And so that's where I get upset a little bit as a mom and a dietitian when I see people feeding their children a vegan diet because it's just not a biologically appropriate diet, especially for a growing human. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, I have seen anecdotal evidence of, of people, you know, maintaining a vegan diet, you know, with certain supplementation, I suppose it's, it's, could be possible to, you but know. Would, would you say though that, and this is just, again, playing devil's advocate kind of on both sides of the discussion here, because I, I know our audience is comprised of people that have both approaches and everyone seems to have pretty valid arguments for their mm-hmm, way, you know? Mm-hmm. But would you say that if someone's eating a particular diet, such as the vegan, strictly vegan diet, and because they're deficient, they have to supplement certain things they're not getting from their diet. Would you say that that just means by default that that's not a natural diet for the human body? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. And I mean, just our, you know, the whole protein fallacy idea. I mean, I've looked at the RDA. I've looked at how the protein requirement was derived and it's we need a lot more protein than the RDA says we need. Um, And then how the RDA is interpreted to, you know, 45 grams for women and 54 for men. So that's based on the RDA is the minimum uh, amount of protein to like avoid problems. It's not the optimal amount. So 0.8 grams per kilogram is, is minimum. Okay. And then what they did is because we don't like, kilograms and we don't like math and conversions and stuff. They went ahead and did it for us, but they base it on a woman at 125 pounds and a man at 160 pounds or something. But that's not even close to the average weights of men and women in America. So I went and calculated that out and, uh, you know, it, it, what we need is about double the RDA. And and I'm not the only one who says this. It was just a New York Times article confirming this, that everyone over 40 needs to lift wow. weights and get 1.6 grams per kilogram. So that's, that's a lot more protein. And so how are we going to get this protein? Are we going to get it from protein powders and monocropping? Or are we going to get this from better meat? Right. And protein powders, I mean, I, you know, I eat them and some of them are better than others, but that is a processed food. It is processed food. I mean, as you food. were talking earlier about processed food, I was like, oh, I, I eat like these bulletproof whey protein bars and the ingredient deck is pristine. I mean, they're great, mm-hmm. but mm, it's not, you know, it's still a process. It's made in a factory. It's right. not made in a farm. Yeah. You know? And I mean, I have RX bars in my bag as right. emergency protein right. and little meat sticks and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I don't think that, I mean, those... I, I think you still need to eat real food. You need to sit down and you need to like actually chew your food. Can you be a vegan and be breastfed? <laughs> <laughs> That's another one of those absurd questions that I just like, I, I can't even, no, I I've just, never thought any, uh, put any energy into that thinking because it, it doesn't, it does, you know, I think not, I mean, what I'm saying is eating like the fluid from another human technically isn't a vegan diet. Yeah, you know? I guess. I wasn't I don't know. I found out recently actually because I had I was doing some testing and my mom was like a hippie in the 60s in Berkeley. I was like, oh, I'm sure I was breastfed. And I text her. She's like, nope. 
I felt so deprived. I thought, God, I, imagine how smart I could have been if I, you know, and it was probably <laughs> like soy formula and stuff in the yeah. 70s. God knows like how gnarly it must have been. I really was like kind of bummed. I was soy I was like, formula fed really? too. Yeah, cesarean birth, soy oh, formula wow. fed. I mean, I, and all those things, I think led to the celiac gene actually being activated in interesting, me. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah. My kids have the gene, but I was like so hardcore about making sure they got optimal nutrition and they were breastfed and everything and they're fine. They they can eat, they can eat wheat, they wow. you know, they they can eat a wide variety of foods that I definitely cannot eat. Back on the uh, the topic of whether or not we're actually biologically meant to eat animal products or mm-hmm. not. Uh, have you ever looked at the fact that like bonobos and chimpanzees that are our closest relatives actually hunt and eat other animals, including other primates in some cases? Do you know anything about that? I know a little bit about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it gets a little like when you start comparing like, well, but our teeth and their guts and our gut, you know, like humans have, we definitely are unique and and separate as well. And and I've seen, I've seen, you know, well, well, elephants have large brains and they're herbivores. And so, you know, or or our teeth look like this and, and that's a carnivore or whatever. Um, humans are omnivores. <laughs> <laughs> Short just... <laughs> answer is human are omnivores. Are you aware of uh, the existence of any successful or actually any cultures at all in human history that were vegans? No, there there is not. That doesn't we've exist. never seen this. We've never seen this. We've never seen multiple generations. I mean, we do know about B12 deficiency in showing up a lot in vegans and especially pregnant women um, having babies that are severely B12 deficient and that causes permanent brain damage. Wow. So I, I, I really don't have like a lot of tolerance for people that... I mean, I understand that I understand where they're coming from, right? I totally get it. They're, but they're, I wish that they had an opportunity to learn a little bit more to get out of that black and white thinking and to learn a little bit more about, you know, how food is grown and, and to explore the ethics. You know, I, I don't know that it's causing least harm to feed a child a biologically inappropriate diet. So if there's no civilization on record in our history that we're vegan at all, let alone successfully vegan, then essentially if we're attempting to do that at this point in our evolution, it's it's an experiment that has no validation in terms of, oh, we know that it works or we know that it's healthy. It's kind of like our first shot at a totally experimental mm-hmm. way of living. Right. Okay. It's good to know. You know, so if someone ventures on that path, you're kind of a pioneer in trying something that actually hasn't been accomplished by humans before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Noted. You talked about being a cesarean. Is it cesarean? Is that what we say? Cesarean. Cesarean. Yeah. yeah. I think both my brothers were born, half brothers were born that way. Their mom's really tiny. I think they were a little much for her, her <laughs> frame. Um, and I've heard that when you're born that way, that if you don't get swabbed with the vaginal bacteria, right. that you don't get sort of inoculated. Do mm-hmm. you think that you were swabbed? Oh, no or, way. So do you think, you, you, like, as you said, some of your issues had to do with that unnatural way of being born? Mm-hmm. And as a result, have you experimented with or are you a proponent of fermented foods as a, a means by which to repopulate your system with some bacteria? Oh, I do all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fermented foods. I do prebiotics. I take probiotics. I'm, I'm, 
I am a huge believer in the miracle of the biome and how, uh, I think we don't know enough about it yet. And I think there's a lot of companies making a lot of money doing testing and, you know, guaranteeing you if you take this product, you will be fine. And I don't think we know enough right now about whether the biome drives health or health drives the biome. You mm, know, I, I think there's a lot of questions still out there. I think we don't know what the perfect biome is for humans. Do you make fermented uh, like kefirs or vegetable ferments or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I make sauerkraut you and do? stuff. Yeah, oh, and I, cool. I, I actually, I'm, I'm kind of lazy and sometimes I just buy it. So right, Wild right. Brine is actually one of my favorite companies. They're, they make flavored, like curry flavored sauerkraut and stuff. Oh, it's cool. really good. Ha- have you heard anything about, uh, in terms of the, the initial bacteria of a ferment, a lot of people are proponents of a wild fermentation. And mm-hmm. I've heard that because you can't really control you know, the bacteria that's floating around the environment that some of those can turn out to be really high in histamines and things like that. Are, mm. you, are you into like a more controlled fermentation or just setting stuff out and letting it do its thing based on what's in the air locally? Well, I think that there definitely are people that are histamine intolerant. And I mean, I think everyone has a bucket of stress, right? And then you've got, you've got all these, you know, bad sleep, financial stress, uh, lack of community, just so many things that, that add up on the bucket. And then, um, you know, biome issues. And then all of a sudden you see this like horrible reactions to high histamine foods like sauerkraut and fish and, and uh, salami and stuff like that, right? right. I, I don't tend to personally have issues with histamines, so I eat them just fine. You know, if I was to make fermented foods like at scale, I'd probably be a little more concerned about, right. you know, the environment and everything. But, you know, in your kitchen, you just... I don't think you really can do too much damage with sauerkraut. Once you get into <laughs> right. cured meats, you can do some damage. Really? Oh, yeah. Why is that? Uh, because bad stuff can grow on meats and you can get people very sick. Oh, interesting. Actually, yeah. you know what? When we were at Belcampo and we were doing the salami making yeah. exercise and we got to go in that sort of big walk-in freezer where they're hanging all the salamis. Yeah. Do you remember the the guy that given the tour, yeah. he said that there was some factory across... Uh, it was like a paper factory. Where mold were getting in there, yeah. the, the air vents or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing, there can be contamination with mm-hmm. some of the cured meats. Is yeah, what you're and maybe that wasn't so bad, but perhaps, you know, what if they were next to a CAFO? Oh, right. You what know. does CAFO stand for? I always call it a CAPO, CAFO. I never can remember <laughs> that. Do you happen to know? Uh, uh, confined animal feeding operation oh. or concentrated animal feeding operation. Oh, that doesn't sound nice at all. No. It sounds like a, it's like a concentration mm. camp for animals. Yeah. And and actually the, the antibiotic resistant bacteria can go airborne and actually infect people that live near them. So oh. I am put me on record as being against yeah. CAFOs. I mean, yeah. that, that's just awful. I think most of the ancestral primal paleo people and vegan school, I think we can all agree on a couple of things. A, pro- highly processed foods suck and are really bad for you. And that all factory farms, whether they be animal or plant-based, also suck for your health and environment as well. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think though that we can have enough small, you know, well curated, well managed farms to feed all of us? Yeah, I mean, that's how it used to be, right? right. So we used to have more bison roaming North America than we do currently have cattle. You know, it would take a huge shift in the system. It would take, you know, a return back to family farming, which could then revitalize small town America again. And, 
you know, I'm hoping that it has to happen because we don't have a lot of harvest left. We don't have enough mined minerals and other artificial ingredients to continue farming plants the way we're farming them. And so we we need to rely more on regenerative agriculture in order to save our soils and save our health. Interesting. I just remembered one, uh, another one of those quirky thoughts that I had one day just on the vegan tip. And I'm not beating up on vegans. It sounds like it maybe. And maybe you are. You have license to do that more because you're more knowledgeable. No, I I, I don't. I, it, I, I get upset with people feeding kids vegan. Right. But, it, you know, adults can do whatever well, they well, want. Well, here's something I was pondering at one point and I wanted to ask you about is that say like I'm a vegan. A lot of vegans are really... They love their pets. They have a lot of dogs and cats and things like that. And they're animal lovers, obviously. And that's Mm -hmm. why, you know, I'm talking like the hardcore PETA kind of people. Right. Have you ever thought about the fact that they're feeding their animals other animals? And where's the ethical line? Like, do you think it's possible to have pets that you love and make them eat an unnatural diet? You know, speaking of feeding kids, what we're saying is most likely an unnatural diet, a plant-based diet. What do you... What do you do if you're a vegan and you don't want to kill animals to feed your animals? Yeah, I don't I don't know what I don't know how they wrestle with that. Uh again, that's not like I I think it's an interesting I think there's a lot I have a lot of interesting <laughs> questions. Does your mind work like mine where you just sit like lay awake and go, "Oh, but wait, this doesn't add up." Like how does that how None do, of it adds up to me. How do you reconcile because... some of these things? I'm such a big proponent of biomimicry right. and 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 so none of the arguments to me but you know the sentience argument the least harm argument the nutrition argument the environmental argument none of that is convincing to me to advocate for no animals I think that eliminating animals from our food system ca- will cause much more harm than than good you know, it's interesting. I had one of these companies that comes, brings an urban farm mm-hmm. to your house. Mm-hmm. They ha- used to have these in LA. Maybe they still do, hopefully. But it's pretty cool. Like they bring these sort of like flower beds yeah. that are portable and they have their irrigation system. And I put one on the roof of my old garage at my old apartment building. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to grow my own organic food and I'm going to eat all these vegetables. And then what happened was I basically started going to war with all the neighborhood animals. The raccoons started coming to eat that shit, slugs, all kinds of weird bugs I'd never seen. I'd come the next day and my, you know, my beet greens would be devoured. And I had to start killing all sorts of creatures to make my plants grow. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to even like grow plants without killing stuff? Because it seems like we're sort of in competition when we grow plants, right? We're in competition with all the other animals, deer, be it whatever they are, that we oh, want yeah. to come eat Lots them as well. Lots of things like salad. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've got a major deer problem on our farm. So how do you not kill all the animals that are animals and insects and stuff that are coming to eat your vegetables? Yeah. I mean, we have deer fencing around, but yeah. Uh, do you know who Lierra Keith is? She wrote a book called The Vegetarian Myth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so she has a great story about slugs and how she, you know, as a vegan was trying to grow lettuce and put out a cup of beer for the slugs to, you know, dr- drink themselves to death. And then, you know, felt bad be, about that. They out happy. <laughs> right. And, and then, but then she, you know, started plucking them and she was going to bring them out to the woods. But then she realized she was like introducing these refugee slugs to the native <laughs> slug population. And, you know, so once you start thinking about all that kind of stuff and you realize, you know, if, if the life of a slug is equal to the life of a, cat is equal to, or the life of a mouse, you know, like where does it end? And, and there's a lot of life underground that's being killed by plant-based agriculture. Well, that's another interesting phenomenon. I think of our human to animal relationship is that 
you know, if I find a cockroach in this apartment, I have no issue just smashing the shit out of it and flushing it down the toilet. Mm -hmm. But why do I value the life of that cockroach less than, I don't know, say like a badger came in my back door or some shit, you know, out of protecting myself, I'd probably knock it out with a spade shovel and kill it or get rid of it. But I would feel more guilty about killing the badger or the streak. A possum. No, a badger is never going to be a possum. Okay. That's, I don't know well, where I, I got badger. Why do we say a bunny? Okay. A little bunny. Say yeah. a little bunny just wanders in my, my back door. I mean, right. it's a not, okay. It's a good example because it's non-threatening. It's like the cockroach is more threatening because it's kind of gross and I don't want it to breed in my apartment, but I, I have no qualms killing that cockroach. But if the bunny came in and it was a foreign invader, I would like feel heavy in my heart and feel really guilty. And then yeah. up, you know, a goat would be a little worse. Well, actually, a, a, you know, a cat or a dog would be the worst of all. Yeah. Because they're, you know, part of the family kind of, but then I would feel worse about a, <laughs> a, a goat than a deer. I'd feel, you know what I mean? There's like and this. The amazing thing is in nature, there is no hierarchy, only hunger. Right. Right. So just everything is eating everything. And there's no like, oh, I'd feel bad. Mm, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat that, you know, like that, that's not, that's not natural. Right. I wonder why though some of us value some lives over others. Because they look more like humans and we impose our, our, we, we give, we anthropomorphize animals and oh. cows look more like dogs than chickens. Oh my God, that's so true. And I, the I, meat is red, so it looks like blood and it might remind us more of an animal than nice chicken or fish, which is white and, and right. packaged and petite. and Like if I was starving and you said, here's a chicken you can kill to eat or here's a cow. I mean, I would definitely pick the chicken. I would feel way less guilty about killing that because the cow is like a sweet, like you said, it could almost be a human face or that cartoon face or on every milk jug when I was a kid it was like this happy cow face. I have this unnatural sort of exaggerated sense of empathy for some animals and not others. Right. It's interesting. I don't know what the know what the answer is, or if that's even a question. It's just yeah. you know, again, in that like to eat an animal or not to eat an animal. Oftentimes, I think those decisions are made by something subconscious that we're not really aware of. And yes, all life is created equal and should all be treated respectfully. But then you get into that, you know, the ethical question of like, well, what is ethical slaughter? If you're killing something, how can that be humane, or how can that be ethical? Mm, well, I, because I think humans are the only ones that are able to be humane. We know what we can do to make it pretty painless. I hope when I go, I just get a button to push, right? right. That's, that's the most humane way I'd want to go. Right. right. Hopefully with a lot of morphine in it, just to go out on a high note. <laughs> totally. Oh, the button's not going to have nothing in it, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's really good to be young and healthy. It really sucks to be old and, and, and like die of a hyena coming to, to eat you or broken leg and then the buzzards come or whatever. I mean, natural death does not equal painless, you know, no suffering at all. Right. Hence, you don't like think of a lion as evil when it just, when a pack of lions just has a gruesome takedown of that gazelle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, those lions are Well, dicks, some people you know? do. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I, to me, like the way I look at it is like that lion just sees a hamburger walking across the prairie, you know? And it's, yeah. like, I, it's like, he's not mean. He's not a bad guy. He's hungry. And that's, yeah. that's kind of where I got to with my vegetarian diet. I was just mm -hmm. like, God, I'm sorry, but I'm freaking dying over here. And it's sort of me or them. I mean, not to be a dick, but it's just, yeah. it's just how I think about it. It's like, well, listen, I mean, I care about my own. It's almost like this 
self-flatulating thing I had going on where like I was suffering so I could like save the animals or something at the end. I had to just go, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm more important. Like I, I have to be healthy and I have to have energy. And I, right. I was so sick and so weak, you know? And I just, that's where I had to come to with my own sense of morals, you know? Yeah. So, wow. What a fascinating conversation. We're about running out of time. I know you've got a dinner out in the valley. I don't want yeah. you to be late. Uh, you're going to really enjoy the LA traffic at, at 6 p.m., by the way. <laughs> Good opportunity to really uh, work on, you know, your surrender and acceptance right. um, on the metaphysical plane. So your film's not out yet, but I'm nope. really excited about what you're doing. So give us a little teaser. You know, I'm, I'm assuming this episode is going to come out before you're done with production. We watched a little 10 minute clip of it. It looks really engaging. It looks beautifully shot. It's really well done. I mean, from my Hollywood eyes, I'm like, you're doing it right. You must have some good people. So tell us about Kale versus Cow, when you might expect an approximate release and what the kind of deal is with your, with your film. Sure. So the idea behind the film is to explore the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for why we might need more better meat in our food system and why eliminating animals is, is maybe not the right thing to do. And so we're going to be talking to health experts. We're going to be talking to regenerative farmers who are sequestering carbon. We're going to be exploring the ethics and, and talking to people on both sides of the fence, the, um, the plant-based and, and those who eat meat and really explore that relationship that we have to meat and what what freaks people out about meat and, you know, how can we have a better system out there? Uh, and so it's it's not a response to a lot of these other films that have come out that are that are bashing meat. It's a really sensitive exploration into what makes a sustainable food system. And um, and I feel like with my experience the last 16 years living on... on uh, sustainable farms, regenerative farm, plus my education in nutrition. It's it's really a nice combination and my art background too. So it's been just super, super fun. Um, so people can learn more about it at sustainabledish.com forward slash film. So I've got my pitch video up. We're still raising some money. The, the faster we raise the money the faster we'll get it done. So, so that's, that's my a, little... That's what we can do to support as, as listeners of the show is help you actually get the thing funded and made. Yeah, so we we our initial crowdfunder um, we're up to between what we raised online and then some other donations we've already raised about two hundred thousand. Cool, but we still need more than that in order to complete it. But we're out there and we're shooting and we're following stories right now, and um, it's really really cool. And so we're hoping it'll come out in two thousand nineteen. Awesome, awesome. Well, congratulations on your work. Thank uh, you. Before we give the rest of your links, I've got my closing question, sure. which is. Um, You've taught me a lot about the whole world of food and agriculture and everything today. It's been fascinating. I'm sure the audience has learned a lot. Who have been three teachers or teachings in your life on any topic, mm. the topics we've discussed or otherwise that you might recommend uh, that our listeners go check out? Could be a book, a philosophy, a person, anything. That's a good... Well, I think Daniel Quinn and um, this Ishmael trilogy is mind-blowing, like mind-blowing. So that one, um, I already also mentioned Wendell Berry. So the unsettling of America, but he has a lot of other books and also the documentary on him, Look and See. And then I, I think the work of the Savory Institute and uh, checking out Alan Savory's TED Talk. Do, are you familiar at all no, with not. them? Um, so uh, he sounds aptly named, though, if he has to do with food. <laughs> 
Well, if you Google Alan Savory TED Talk, and um, so they are a great organization that's um, going around the world, um, organizing hubs and teaching uh, regenerative uh, grazing methods to farmers all over the world. And oh, um, cool. it's really, really amazing. So, so he's sort of like the global Joel Salatin? Sort of, yeah. Actually, Joel Salton is the one who um, told me about Alan Savory. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. And where can we find you and your links other than the one you mentioned? Uh, so I guess on my my website is sustainabledish.com. I'm most active on social media, on Instagram. I try to Instagram about once a day. Um, and then I... Depending on on how busy I am, I try to do the stories thing, but that's at Sustainable Dish. Um, I'm not a huge Twitter person, um, but it's, it's an echo chamber. I think yeah. of something clever and I tweet it. I'm like, great, no one even. I didn't get one like. I'm done. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> um, and then on Facebook, I do tend to post a lot about uh, different studies and and all that kind of stuff. But I have a newsletter that goes out once a week where I do a roundup of of latest news stories that relate to. Everything from I'm such a huge believer in in sleep hygiene in in proper nutrition and sustainability. So, and I blog a lot about all that stuff too. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for making the time to come by and see me today on your trip to LA. And thank you. Uh, I can't wait to see you again and to see your film. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really psyched. Awesome. Damn, somebody better call an ambulance. I sense there are some blown minds scattered about the room or the car, wherever you are. We need some uh, paramedic help to come <laughs> clean up these blown minds. No, seriously, uh, really fun to sit down with Diana again. You know, she and I, uh, as I think we talked about in the episode, met up at uh, Belcampo Farms and spent some time together on an actual farm. So it was really cool to have her over in the studio here and actually get down to pick her brain about some details. You know, when you meet someone and you just chat, it's not really mm, oftentimes appropriate to sit there and like really ask them 50 questions. So one of the most fun things about my job as the host of the Lifestylist podcast is I get to go meet fascinating people out in the world, but then hit them up to be on the show and really be able to pick their brain about the details of everything they know and do. And this one was really informative for me. A very interesting perspective. As I said in the intro, I've actually had a number of different vegans or plant-based advocates on the show before. I don't know that I've really had one that was this focused on the benefits of eating meat for the planet and for health. As always, this is just someone's perspective. It tends to be my perspective based on my experience being into all things health food and all that for so many years. But listen, I'm open-minded. I'm always um, always willing to learn and look at things from a different perspective. And I think that keeps my mind young, it keeps it healthy, and it keeps me in that beginner's mind state. And hopefully, maybe even gives me a modicum of humility here and there, just a sliver, you know what I'm saying? At least, if nothing else, it uh, makes it possible to take on new ideas and in some cases, let go of ideas that I've held that aren't serving me or at some point have become obsolete. So there you go. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, When Diana's film comes out, I highly recommend that you check it out. I'm really stoked for that one. There's been a lot of voices from the other side and not necessarily from her perspective. So I think it's going to be great to uh, get a well-rounded point of view there. 
And also, as I said in the intro, check out her podcast. It's amazing. If you're into the stuff she was talking about, she not only shares on her podcast, but she interviews the experts around the world that are into sustainable farming and environmentalism and all of the things that she alluded to. So she has a very focused, very specific show. And it also has a lot to do with just making food that tastes good and is healthy and stuff. So if you're a foodie, if you're into paleo, if you're into farming, agriculture, all that kind of stuff, you'll love her show. Okay. Enough about that. Let's get on to thanking our sponsors, man. Much love to the sponsors. And before I name call them, I would like to say that if you're unaware of this, that it should be something that you know about. And that is that over at lukestory.com forward slash store, you can find just about everything that I talk about in terms of products and services and things like that for your health, including most of our sponsors and also including, in most cases, discount codes. So rather than me just emailing people randomly different links and codes for things that I like to take or do, I figured out about a year ago, I could just put them all on my site and I don't actually sell anything in my store. I just link out to all of my favorite things to make it easy for you to find. So you don't have to go do all of the research yourself if you don't like to geek out like that. Like me, I like researching the best products in health and biohacking, and I keep searching and searching and searching until I find the best. I put that on my site, and that's the one that I use uh, in most of those cases. And when I find a better one, I get rid of the whack one, and I put the best one up. And that's kind of the system I have going. So again, you can go to lukestory.com forward slash store and find a really beautiful store where I've categorized everything based on the different elements of your lifestyle. Get it? The Lifestylist Podcast. It's pretty awesome. Okay, so specifically our three sponsors this week, whom I would love for you to support because they support the show. First one being Biostrap. You can go to biostrap.com forward slash Luke and save 25% off their already affordable products. The audience code there is story. So that's biostrap.com forward slash Luke, 25% off using the code story. Biostrap makes one of the most convenient and accurate tracking devices. What's cool about it is it's customizable. So you can track your meditation, your sleep, very specific workouts, activities. I mean, hell, if you wanted to, you could even track your biomarkers during sex. I mean, that's how customizable it is. I haven't done that yet, but it's a pretty good idea, actually. I guess I just need to have sex in order to do that. Boom. <laughs> All right. Not putting it out there. That was not an advertisement for sex. It was just saying, well, now I've dug myself into quite a hole, haven't I? No pun intended again. God damn it. The puns just keep on coming. Next up, Athletic Greens. I better quit while I'm ahead. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke. And these guys have been with us for a while, man. If you're not on Athletic Greens, you're straight tripping. You better be on some kind of greens, and these would be the healthiest, at least for your body. Get 20, yes, count them, 20 free travel packs valued at 99 bucks. You know, that's almost 100 with your purchase. So all you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Luke, the most healthy green powder on the planet. It's amazing stuff. I think you could probably just about live off it. Well, maybe not according to Diana. You might have to throw some animal bones in there or something. I believe it's a vegan product, yes, so... It wouldn't be in accordance with her recommendations, but definitely a nice addition. Last but certainly not least, ergo-driven. And as I sit here, my feet are touching my super gooey ergo-driven topo mat, which I use most of the time when I'm standing, but I also just like to have it under my feet while I'm sitting on my duff as I currently am. So if you want... Uh, an ergo, dynamic, safe, healthy workspace. You want to go to ergodriven, 
Luke.com forward slash Luke. Use the code Luke over there to save 10%. And their products are super affordable anyway. Um, but definitely you want to get the Topo mat. The Topo mat is awesome if you have a standing desk. And if you don't have a standing desk, they have one for like $25 over at Ergo Driven. So go to ergodriven.com forward slash Luke. And I think that's it. And as I thank our sponsors more than anyone in the world, well, of course, our guest, Diana, always thank the guests, even though they probably never hear the end of the damn show like you are right now. And by the way, if you're listening to this, then this is even more heartfelt because I want to thank you so much for listening to the Lifestylist podcast. And the only, the one and only thing I ask of you is that if this or any other show has been meaningful to you, that you share it with, well, let's just say, not one friend, how about two or three friends? No, seriously, uh, share the show with a few people. That's a great way to get this message out, to get attention to our guests, to get attention to the topics that we're discussing here on the podcast. Thank you so much. May the most high blessings and goodwill be bestowed upon you today. See you on Friday for the Longevity Now All-Stars crazy ass episode. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.